Malcolm Honline is with us. He is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us for the weekly update every Friday at 7.40 Eastern Time. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Shabbos. Shabbos. Everything. Yeah, it's a big one, huh? Big one. The month of miracles is about to begin. The month of redemption is about to begin. We need both. We certainly do. Senator Bernie Sanders, who's running for president of the United States, was criticized by the Anti-Defamation League concerning his remarks in a Daily News interview. He characterized Israel's response to Hamas shelling of Israeli citizens as, quote, disproportionate and exaggerated the casualty total in Gaza, a war provoked by Hamas's targeting of civilians, as we know. Now Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador, has denounced Sanders' remarks. First of all, he should get his facts right. Secondly, he owes Israel an apology. He accused us of a blood libel. He accused us of bombing hospitals. He accused us of killing 10,000 Palestinian civilians. Don't you think that merits an apology? And he continues, he doesn't mention the many thousands of Hamas rockets fired at us. He doesn't mention the fact that Hamas hides behind civilians. He doesn't mention the fact that he pulled out of Gaza in order to give the Palestinians a chance to experiment with statehood, and they turned into experiment with terror. He doesn't mention any of that. That, to me, is libelous. What was your reaction to the statements by Bernie Sanders, and does it concern you that it seems he and maybe even other presidential candidates who are at the forefront at this time are not as educated about the Middle East as they should be? Well, it's certainly a great concern when a presidential candidate with the platforms that he has uh, answers uh, uh, in states in an affirmative and definitive way that Israel killed 10,000 people, and he was challenged by his interviewer on it, and then uh, his response to the criticism, which we and many others launched about the, about the comment, uh, was, well, I accepted his, uh, his correction. He did not assert the correction, and I think he has yet to make his own statement uh, uh, acknowledging that, uh, I mean, the number is just so far off, but it does tell you how uh, the media coverage would lead someone, a senator, to, to a conclusion like that, and, and he still seeks to justify it, um, the, the nature of his comment. And I think, uh, A, he has to be educated about it. I don't know who are the people around him who are advising him on this, or if this was just his... Uh, reaction, but the the fact is that that even in the discussion that he had uh, after the criticism, he did not say, uh, didn't take it upon himself to to apologize and to just say to correct the record and talk about Israel's you know restraint in in these circumstances. You know, I I don't know if we did this or not, and if we did, it was probably early on. Um, I don't know if I've ever asked you about his general voting record or attitude or encounters you may have had with him in his career in United States politics. Obviously, you know, he's so much more high profile now than he was a few months ago, so it's even more interesting. Is there any insight that you can give us into Bernie Sanders? He had very little contact, and uh, he was not, you know, out front uh, in terms of pro-Israel legislation. Um I think that uh, the question of his voting record will be one that will be carefully examined, uh, especially now that he comes uh, to New York, and we'll see what what he says. But, you know, he has made references to J Street inclusion. J Street is uh, people he consults, and uh, Jim Zogby and others that didn't give 
many of those who heard it a great deal of confidence. Yeah. But um, uh, so he he really was not that uh, that visible. I think your your uh, statement about it is a reflection of uh, of his activities over those that period or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. Um, the uh, how interesting is it that New Yorkers statewide and I guess New Jerseyans at some point as well will actually have a role in nominating candidates from both parties. Usually by now it's uh, you know it's a done deal, so to speak. Well, this is unusual, and I think it's the first time in decades that New York is really in play. I think it gives us a unique opportunity to make our voices heard, to, to raise with candidates the issues, going to the events where they provide an opportunity for people to be heard, and uh, to show by a turnout our involvement and commitment. We have a unique opportunity, that's for sure. As I look up, uh, New Jersey is June 7th, so... You know, I guess less of a chance to have a real influence, but you never know in this election uh, this season. This year, it's impossible to predict, but New York certainly is in play, and that's April nineteenth. Yeah. And I think people should, you know, take advantage of the opportunities that are presented now. A year after he, this is the New York Times. A year after he struck the outlines of a nuclear deal with Iran, Secretary of State Kerry finds himself confronting a new challenge from Tehran. While it is observing the nuclear agreement to the letter, its missile launches, arms shipments to Yemen, and involvement in Syria have, if anything, accelerated. Kerry arrived for a meeting of the Arab states this week with the objective of reassuring them. With an array of plans for new missile and cyber defenses, instead he found himself disputing the argument of one leading diplomat from the UAE at Tehran today is, quote, as dangerous as ever. Now, you've pointed this out to us many times about the fear throughout the leadership of many Arab states when it comes to Iran, a fear they can't always publicly express. Kerry gets there. Is, is it only the UAE? Are, 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 are others also expressing concern to him, maybe not as maybe in, in not as open a fashion as they are? Well, first of all, the, the UAE ambassador, whom I met recently, um, issued that uh, op-ed as an expression of uh, frustration, you know, that's not something that a the UAE normally does, or Arab states normally do, which is to take their differences to the press. But I think it's a reflection of the frustration that is felt not just there, but in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and in most of the Arab world, in Egypt, to, from Egypt to Morocco, from in all the countries that we meet with Muslim countries, not just Arab countries, and of course in other places as well. Yeah, there is a, a strong expression of frustration about disengagement, about um, feeling it's not a priority, feeling that uh, we have let Iran get away with too much, and and it's just not, it's not just the things that that the, uh, he cited in in the uh, op-ed piece that he did, but there is a, a, a litany of the activities that Iran consistently uh, engages in the U.S. Navy intercepted just a few days ago another weapon shipment from Iran to the Houthis with 1,500 Kalashnikov rifles and uh, mortars and many other uh, items. This is, I think, the third shipment that's been intercepted, so we don't know how many actually got through in addition to that. Uh, And that's a direct violation uh, of the Security Council resolutions on on Yemen that's supposed to bar and, and Iran specifically, but but it goes beyond that. Iran's involvement in in so many issues, uh, the aggressiveness in the region, 
the expansion of its activities, its Hezbollah activities uh, in South America, the recruitment drives they have going on there, the, um, which we should talk about because it also involves uh, ISIS recruitment now in, in South America. But Iran's activities cover uh, uh, such a wide range of um, activities, and, and the feeling is that uh, we, we continue to give in or we don't uh, hold Iran to, the, to their word and you saw that there was a parsing of the spirit and the letter, right. uh, I think, by the president. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, because even in this article, when it discusses missile launches and arms shipments, is it, is it still accurate to say that they're observing the nuclear agreement to the letter? Is it still, are, those things are not included in any way? See, that's a very interesting point, because, and a question I raise all the time, and, they, and I ask them, are you saying there's a firewall between the nuclear program and all the other activities right. that engage in, and the ah. answer is essentially yes, that they judge compliance with the JCPOA, the deal that was reached on the Iran nuclear program, separate and apart from uh, the other areas where there are separate sanctions, by the way, and we do have, and the United States is applying sanctions and even coming up sometimes with new sanctions on the missile program or on other suppliers, um, you know, that... that uh, provide weapons or, or technology uh, to the missile program. But the missile program is moving ahead. They launched missiles that they did not pay a price there. The United Nations, you know, other than the discussion, did not really um, come up with any program or any any kind of um, punishment that one, one would say fits the, the crime and, and the violations. And now the talk of giving European countries, for instance, access indirectly to American to dollarization, as we called it, and we discussed it a little bit last week, and that issue came to the fore again this week. Uh, it, it, the administration tried to define it down, and it's not as was originally suggested, but it's still a, a, a reward to them to facilitate trade, and the, and the United States says, well, this is part of our commitment, living up to our commitments on the deal that we demand. They do. We have to but the others look at this and say, well, this is a backdoor way for them to get access to the dollar that, that a lot of European companies wouldn't conclude the deals or even if they signed deals, didn't actually implement them because of fear that they would be subject to sanctions and, and, uh, and punishment. I think European banks have paid about $15 billion to U.S. in, in fines for various violations over the years. So, the, you know, it's not a hypothetical concern. Right, so, but... But you, but you said even the other even the other aspects of this, not necessarily the nuclear program, are subject to sanctions, right? Sure, and the, the, there's an international uh, task force on financial issues that includes China and Russia, and they voted unanimously for uh, to put it uh, indicating the risk uh, for terror financing, et cetera, from uh, Iran and North Korea with heavy penalties. Uh, for porn enforcement, etc. So, um, and and Iran is not lessening its aggressive behavior. We see the Iran commandos now being sent to uh, to advise the Syrian government, and they announce all these things. It's not as if they yeah. they are doing it behind the, the scene. They do it almost in a challenging way. Uh, that uh, you know, the other countries in the region look at this and say. You know, we've given them a blank check. We haven't, but their behavior would certainly indicate that. Yeah. And now you have the sale of the Sukhoi 30s to by Russia, 
and Russia's saying they're not going to back off of it. The United States said we're going to go to the Security Council because it is a violation in selling uh, these, are, these are prohibited weapons. Uh, the United States say, the Russians say they're not prohibited. So we could be in line for another conflict over this. So how does the Secretary of State calm these countries down, especially if our you know leader in the White House you know, essentially has his back. You know, he keeps making statements, as you said earlier, that, uh, you know, parsing words and, you know, essentially, you know, glossing over the fact that they may be violating something. Well, I think that the, the first thing is is taking more seriously the perception of the countries in the region, that while what we are doing and the intention of what we're doing is, is meant to, to achieve a result that uh, would be beneficial, the, the fact is, that the perception of this, and in the Middle East, that becomes more important than reality. Right, and yeah. those who haven't should read uh, I.B., the ambassador from UAE's uh, op-ed piece, hmm. and you can get a, a, a real message. You know, the regional aggression, the provocations, the, all this behavior. Now, they're on the front line of the receiving end of this, and then they see Iran getting $100, $150 billion, et cetera, and... Um, uh, their role in Yemen, the the, the um, getting the new new planes, and they say, you know, there's something wrong with this picture. So the Congress has begun to act. There are a lot of bills that are floating around, a lot of things that are being proposed, additional sanctions, uh, renewing the sanctions, the Iran Sanctions Act. Um, that is an expression of um, the concern and 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 the response to the behavior. The administration says, look, we did not change anything. We're implementing what we agreed to in the original deal. Right. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmdm.org, and of course on the NSN app. Malcolm Honline is with us. He's Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. People are fascinated, rightfully so, with the Panama Papers scandal. I think money laundering and <laughs> and that kind of activity always fascinates people. Uh, what's the ripple effect? And and there was mention of somebody from uh, a past administration in Israel who may have been involved. What's the ripple effect in the Middle East of this uh, of this scandal? We've only begun to see the tip of the iceberg of uh, of the scandal. If everything comes out, in fact, there could be. Uh, many, many Israeli companies who were involved with this, and that's not necessarily a legal activity. The um, money laundering charges is only if they didn't pay taxes, if they hid the money, or they used this as a way to escape. Many people, you know, set up these kind of uh, accounts, uh, not from money laundering or, or other illegal purposes, but to be able to do business abroad, to do business in foreign currencies. Uh, so if uh, people had accounts there and sold businesses, made the trades, whatever, and reported it to the tax authorities in their countries, then it's it's not a violation. This company itself has a very checkered history, and I think much more will come out. But they were involved in a, in a case defending uh, against uh, somebody trying to claim uh, Nazi looted art. Right. Um, there are others who say the origins in the company go back through that period, uh, this is all stuff that will come out. But but I think there are a lot of Israelis, but more importantly, a lot of the leaders around the world. You saw the yeah. Prime Minister of Iceland had to resign, and David Cameron had to acknowledge that 
he and his wife made money from an account that his father had had there, but he said that he paid taxes and did nothing illegal. Wow, unbelievable. Uh, another Turkey reconciliation deal going on with Israel. Uh, hard to keep track exactly where they are <laughs> week to week or month to month. Uh, what is the latest on that? Uh, I think it's still very problematic. There are negotiations that are going on. They, they were on on Thursday and on Friday. Uh, Thursday, uh, meaning yesterday, our time, and uh, was supposed to continue. There's still differences. Uh, for instance, the presence of Hamas representatives. Uh, Erdogan refuses to call them a terrorist organization. He said to us that they are a political party, you know, a resistance movement. I mean, both, par- both parties, according to the media, said after the next meeting the deal is going to be finalized. You're saying that that's likely not going to happen. Well, they said it a long time ago, too, and I said, and, and I met with Erdogan last week, and uh, when his responses on those issues did not indicate that he had changed his mind. And that really, for Israel, is a critical issue, that you can't have uh, these guys operating. Now, it could be that they will delimit their activities, and uh, even if they don't officially ban them, there could be some compromise uh, on this. But now, the, the difference is that Turkey needs this deal with Israel, maybe more than Israel needs this deal with Turkey. Israel has um, budding relationships in the region, certainly Greece, Cyprus, etc., in the Mediterranean basin, and, and Turkey is more or less cut out because in part of its relationship or lack thereof with, with Israel. Also, it's under siege from Russia. It's uh, feeling the pressures from the war in Syria and from the Kurds, and so the rela- reestablishing the relationship with Israel and the you know, with its tourism industry decimated, Israelis made up a significant part, nothing like the four and a half million Russians, but very significant for a small country. So uh, for uh, many, many reasons, it's in his interest to to try and reach an accord with Israel, and Israel has certain principles that it feels are, are really essential, and one of them, and, and it already apologized, it paid compensation, so th- th- he wants put ships outside of Gaza to generate electricity, wants to open up the border to bringing in all sorts of building materials. Israel's shut down the cement supply because, again, the, Hezbollah, the uh, Hamas was diverting it and using it for the tunnels and, the, and bunkers and all sorts of other activities. Well, if, if Turkey was not more desperate than Israel to, to get this deal going, then they wouldn't be sitting at the table to begin with, right? I mean, there'd be no reason. We see what's, we see what's happened over the last six years. Right, they would not. Yeah. He would not be negotiating, and you saw after Mavi Mamara, right. and then the threat to have another ship going. But but he's contained it, and the fact is that during the terrorist attack, he was very good. The president himself ordered that all services be provided to the Israelis who were killed and, and wounded, um, and maybe you know the terrorism brings people together. But you know we also have a big Jewish community there to worry about. Yeah, no question about that. Um, uh, the uh, the head of the PA, Mahmoud Abbas, is ready to to move forward to pressure the United, the United Nations for a resolution condemning the settlements. And this could happen in the next few weeks, right? I know the prime minister has come out with a statement that this would harm whatever peace process that still exists. Uh, how likely is it that Abbas will pursue it? I think it's, it is very likely. I think he, he wants to force the issue. Uh, I think the French backed off at least from what they told me, of the support for a resolution. And so they they are not seeing the kind of uh, uh, groundswell of support. Uh, uh, there may be, you know, the Russians won't support him or others. The United States has not taken a position, and again, because 
it's more of a hypothetical. We don't know what's going to be in the actual text of, of uh, what they're going to submit. It'll probably focus on settlement policy, which will make it harder for some of the Europeans, maybe even the United States, to veto or to, you know, the, maybe they'll abstain, or maybe they will say that, you know, that uh, hopefully they will uh, come out against it. Uh, but again, we don't know what the text is. He did say that he was prepared to talk to the prime minister, and he went on Israeli TV to proclaim it. It's interesting, he didn't do it on PA television. And Netanyahu very cleverly said, okay, I cleared my calendar. Any day you want to come, I'm <laughs> here waiting for you. I'm available to you. And of course, he doesn't want to negotiate, and he keeps putting obstacles in the way of negotiations. And they did it again this week, which did not get much coverage, where they uh, uh, listed all the preconditions that they would place on uh, on negotiations, including you know declaring an end to settlements and other things. And and the principles that he wants are going to be difficult. They're going to consist on the right of return. With if it's going to be a limited definition, it's one thing. If it's <coughs> going to be what uh, some of the Palestinian leaders continue to assert not going to help. You know, it's funny. The other day I was thinking to myself, you know, the, the the five people that are still in this presidential race, which of them, if not all of them, will pursue a Middle East peace process, will try to pick up the ball and get the two parties to the table again? And I guess there is no reason to suspect that, that any of the five would not, right? Well, I don't know that. Uh, it, I think there are very big differences in the way the five would approach things, but the, the you can't impose a Middle East peace. It's a lesson. Every president comes in thinking that they could do it by dint of their personality, the force of their, you know, their prestige, etc. And in fact, you can't impose peace. We can't do it in Syria. You can't do it any results if it doesn't come from within. If it isn't organic, it's not going to last. And if uh, you, you can't come in when, when uh, uh, people make demands, as we saw from, I think it was Arakat this week, of the preconditions and setting conditions for for the talks that are are impossible for Israel to to agree to, and why would they agree to condi- to to conditionality in advance of the talks? And when you see all that's going on in the region, I mean, we are going to have so many priorities of of hot conflicts. The Palestinian issue continues to simmer, and hopefully, will be resolved. But we have really hot situations going on in Syria. You see the the Russians sending uh, commandos in. You see the the uh, fact that they they didn't really withdraw from from Syria. They realigned, but they keep their bases. And we see that uh, you know others are are asserting themselves. And we see changes. You know that there, there are no Syrian troops anywhere on the border between Israel and Syria and the Golan. Even on Mount Hermon, there are no more Syrian army. They were all. Um, they left, I think, there in the winter and other places since, and except for a small presence in, in uh, Kunetra, no Syrian soldiers uh, on the Golan. Right. Uh, you see some of the other terrorist organizations that have tried to encroach on, on it, and something Israel obviously has to watch uh, uh, very carefully. But that situation is, is, is not uh, simmering down. It's changing. There are reorientations in terms of fighting, but ISIS um, may have uh, been set back a little bit in Syria, but now we see them reemerging in uh, in Libya and even in South America. 
where, as you remember, I talked a long time ago about the, the tribes, the Wayu tribes, and others that even 10 years ago, Hezbollah had converted, and, and uh, right after the conversion, he tried to blow up the U.S. embassy in Caracas, but that was Venezuelan based, and now it's expanded. But we see ISIS going after uh, in, in Mexican Mayas in Mexico, uh, tr- uh, tribes in Ecuador, in other countries where they're expanding their activities, and it's be- and of course their presence in Libya, and uh, the threat of terrorism in the Mediterranean against Europe, etc. So we have so many issues. There are going to be so many uh, conflicts that, that could well be hot conflicts that uh, that I think you know the pursuit of uh, of Middle East peace to many people is is of secondary uh, in Palestine Israeli issue. Yeah. But the, while but still you, on the agenda is secondary. But you know how it is, the White House and the UN, they you know the, the, that's all they pay attention to. That's all yeah. they pay attention to. Get all the resolutions we saw it again, five anti-Israel resolutions, the status of women resolution against Israel. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's almost incredible that uh, you would think with all the other tsarists going on, but that's it. To tell the Prime Minister, we really got to improve the image of Israel out there. My gosh, it's terrible what's going on. Well, it's not because the Prime Minister yeah, doesn't know. care. and they know every, No, but everybody does say it. Why is Israel's PR so bad? Why is Israel's PR? For one thing, two-thirds of the American people support Israel, so it's not that bad. And they get it. They see through the, the distorted coverage, which we see so much. And, and maybe we can draw inspiration. You know, there was a report this week, I think, that Chinese tourism was up. 43% this year, 50,000 Chinese came, and they're adding a new route that will bring 35,000 more this year wow. uh, in a nonstop volume from China. From India, it's up, I think, 15%. Uh, 40,000 uh, are coming. Moody's rated Israel A1 in, in, as a stable economy, despite all these stars and stuff. You know, the economy is strong, uh, the high R&D uh, proportion, which is probably the highest in the world. And um, so we can draw inspiration from some of the good stuff that's happening. Some major deal was signed with an Israeli company in China this week, and I I think it was the largest one of all, and I just can't remember. I read it somewhere. I can't remember. Well, Uh, there are a lot of deals being signed. Not all of them get the coverage, but there are delegations in Israel every week working on deals, Japanese, Chinese, uh, Indians in particular, but also others. Um, who, and Amer- major American companies, of course, that have purchased a lot of the Israeli companies. Uh, Hamas claims it's holding Israeli hostages, and it seems that there's finally confirmation that they have live hostages and dead bodies of others uh, of other Israelis uh, that are being held. First of all, is this getting media attention in Israel? Is being, you know, usually hostage situations like this, you know, do get a lot of attention. Maybe. Um, maybe there's no champion of this cause. I don't know who the family members are, etc. But is this getting any attention? Is, and is it 100% true? It is 100% true. There are two, uh, I think a Bedouin and, and, and a, a, an Ethiopian who wandered across the border. Both, I think, have uh, perhaps some problems. Um, and they are alive. And the two who were in the tunnels in, in Golden, uh, one of them, uh, and Shaul, they uh, the, they are being held. Their bodies are being held. We have we work on it all the time through foreign leaders, through others trying to get pressure. Obviously, Hamas doesn't uh, respond easily. They want to trade and uh, f- for this, or they, they you know they want to cause pain. They want to uh, cause difficulties, and to, to use these as examples. But 
the um, there have been discussions through intermediaries about this. You know, it did get a lot of press in Israel. It consistently gets press. Uh, obviously, the families are very frustrated at the lack of movement. But I can tell you from my own direct experience and involvement in this that it's very difficult that we raised it. We have foreign leaders who, who have committed to, to doing something on it, and they come back frustrated and saying and we can't move them. Wow. What do you make of this uh, mass ISIS kidnapping that's taken place in Syria? And is it just, just a reminder that no matter what Syrian forces are doing to uh, knock down ISIS, they, are, they, they still have plenty of strength remaining? They have plenty of strength, and again, it doesn't take a lot for, you don't need thousands of troops to do these, these kind of horrific uh, attacks and acts, and uh, I think that people, you know, have to look at the at the um, record of ISIS uh, to see that they, that although they're moving out, as I said, into Libya, into other places as well, and they expand their activities, and they enlist others online, and groups that, that sign up uh, as um, affinity groups to, to ISIS. But in, in Syria itself, they control area. They've lost some of the, the territory that they held, but there's still a strong presence there. They all want to hold out until, you know, if there's an eventual settlement that they can get enshrined in whatever way Syria is cut up or divided. They're still being bombarded, remember, by a coalition of Europeans and Russians and Americans and uh, rebel groups. Uh, Turkey uh, have been targeting them. Uh, so, you know, they, their resistance and the ability to, to stay alive. But again, terrorists don't need big numbers. Remember, they came in on those uh, um, little trucks. Yeah, That's all they had. They didn't have a plane. They didn't have a tank. Are we going to see, uh, as a follow-up to this mass kidnapping, uh, some, some some mass disturbing videos? Is that well, of course they 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 want it. They advertise what they've uh, what they do, the horrific actions, and unfortunately becomes uh, a recruiting tool for them, uh, as has been proven till now. And you see that the number of foreign fighters, uh, the, the increased discussion, something we talked about two years ago, maybe more about them coming back to Europe and their ability to maneuver. And now they talk about the fact that it would take, you know, 100,000 policemen in Europe to be able to monitor all of these guys. And uh, the, the police forces expressing their, their frustrations. Uh, I think that there are five, in America, 500 or 600 people assigned to monitor returning foreign fighters. The number has to be much greater eventually. Or now, but in Europe, uh, the, I heard just in the last couple of days again assessments from top security officials how woefully inadequate their ability to monitor and to to deal with these uh, with with the threat that's posed from these guys. All right, Malcolm, you get the final word. Tell us about ISIS recruitment in South America. Well, I think that this is uh, what I mentioned to you about their going after the tribes and the, the different uh, groups. And what they do is they go into a village uh, like the Wayus and they convert the whole village. <laughs> and they use inducements and, uh, uh, and they use uh, various approaches, to pressure, etc., to, to get them to, uh, to turn around. And the, the fact that the governments did nothing 
to inhibit this activity, and now we see how it has spread to at least a dozen, a half a dozen countries where actual recruitment, but when it takes place in Mexico, and these groups then can become, can target the United States and target American interests, then it brings it home to people about how serious it is. And, you know, we, we also saw so many other conflicts this week coming to the fore, the, the fight in the Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, but also between Russia and Turkey, which is backing Azerbaijan, Russia took the Armenian side. But the potential for a thing like that to escalate, and both sides calmed it down, and, and the Azeris did a unilateral ceasefire. But that's uh, another one of those situations. But you see also in those areas where the extremist groups are recruiting and where they're exacerbating the existing tensions uh, and, you know, the the focus on very narrow areas obscures the global nature of this threat. Who are we rooting for in that one? Is it Azerbaijan or the other guys? Who are we rooting for in that one? <laughs> are rooting for peace and that they... Can't keep track out, but anymore. But there's a long history to this, this conflict, and it's really interesting because if you understand this, you know the history that goes back... Um, to, to the uh, Russian Revolution, and this was this was made an autonomous region after the Bolshevik re- re- Revolution and after the um, uh, Russian the, the, uh, Revolution, the fall in, in, of the Soviet Empire. It was made an independent re- a republic, but it it is an enclave inside Azerbaijan, controlled by the Armenians. So. One day we'll have the time to go through a history of it. It's really quite a fascinating circumstance, but it flares up every once in a while. And, it, of course, you know, it's tied to also to the Armenian genocide and, you know, the the charges, which involve Turkey, involve Azerbaijan later, and involves, um, uh, obviously, the Armenians and, and the Russians who have been tied, are actually tied to both sides, and they are trying now to intercede and, to negotiate a uh, ceasefire. Unbelievable. Um, the the month of redemption begins tonight, and as you said earlier, we could certainly use it. Amen. That's for sure. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak Good again Shabbos. next week. Next week will be Malcolm's final appearance before Pesach. We will not be a uh, there will not be a weekly update on Erev Pesach itself, and there will not be one obviously on Shvishal Pesach. We're not on the air Shvishal Pesach. So just realize that regarding the weekly update schedule.